Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. This is indeed Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we're going to be talking about true crime in about two minutes. First, a bit of a fish wrap for you. Today's newspapers, tomorrow's fish wrap, front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, front page of the Springfield Republican. From our friend and regular segment host, Max Page, the president of the Massachusetts Teachers Association, who was with us yesterday with the president of the University of Massachusetts, Marty Meehan. Dateline Boston, debt-free scholarships, Massachusetts voters in 2024 could be asked to settle two major educational debates. The state's largest teachers union is considering a ballot questions that would eliminate the graduation requirement associated with MCAS, the statewide standardized testing program, and also create debt-free college scholarship programs, both proposals that, as the Republican, that's MassLive.com, puts it, both proposals that the legislative leaders legislative leaders have hesitated to embrace. We were going to continue to cover this story with Max Page, of course, who is with us every week, usually on Friday, but this week, yesterday, because he is at a conference for the National Education Association. Really important issues that will become that will come before the voters. The other uh, story that we note was on the front page of the Republican newspaper, uh, MassLive.com, and the front page of the Daily Hampshire Gazette, uh, GazetteNet.com. Mayor vetoes crisis pregnancy center ordinance, Dateline East Hampton. <clears throat> Interesting to us, the fish wrap, of course, which where we comment not only on the news, but the placement of the news and the treatment of the news. The mayor vetoes crisis pregnancy center front page on both papers, Dateline East Hampton, I think, indicating that editors of those publications think this is a really important story. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle has vetoed the uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center Ordinance, an ordinance that does, in fact, target crisis pregnancy centers, and there is one in East Hampton. The mayor says this is not the business that the city should be in, uh, that these matters are covered by state law. The proponents say, no, this is another protection for women who are in need of actual information regarding pregnancy. So, you know, I think one possible thing, instead of an ordinance, it's possible to just pass a resolution that decries the pregnancy center concept. And that way, maybe that's the compromise that, uh, that they could reach it. But I don't know if the story is as much about the pregnancy center proposal as it is about the relationship between the mayor and the city council. Yeah, I think that's a good insight. Something we will follow up, and of course, Nicole Chappelle is with us on Mayor's Monday. That's the third Monday of the month. Looking forward to having the mayor on with us this month. We now turn to uh, Sarah Weinman, and she is a Northampton and New York City resident. We cannot hesitate to let that little town to our south go unmentioned. She is the author of the New York Times, in the New York Times book review of the True Crime column. True Crime. <laughs> Sarah Weinman, who is with us in the studio, we should note, is going to be at the Odyssey Bookshop next Wednesday at 7 o'clock. She has a new book. You will not be surprised to know. Uh, the title of which is Evidence of Things Seen. 7 o'clock next Wednesday at the Odyssey for a book reading signing, Q&A, and she'll be in conversation with a very prominent author who we will be discussing in just a minute as well. Sarah Weinman, thank you so much for being with us. Northampton and New York City resident, Sarah Weinman. True crime. Okay. Yes. All right. So first, let's start with the title of your new book. Tell us what it is and tell us why it is. 
I chose the title Evidence of Things Seen because it's actually a callback to a title of a di very different book by the celebrated writer James Baldwin. And that book, which came out in 1985, was called The Evidence of Things Not Seen. And it grew out of an essay he wrote for Playboy where he was commissioned to go to Atlanta and look into what was happening with these child murders, which took place largely from 1979 through 1981. A suspect was arrested and convicted and is still serving time. But there's a lot of question as to whether he did all of the murders or if he only did a few. And more to the point, it called into question why these crimes were ignored for so long and what the sort of systemic issues were. So Baldwin's essay got at a lot of that. But he also did some really interesting things structurally and literarily, like a really poignant scene in his essay, which later became the book, is where he encounters the parent of one of the child victims, and he feels really reluctant to go and talk to her because he feels like, I'm just going to be adding to her pain. I'm going to be sort of re-traumatizing her, though he didn't use that phrase. Yeah, but that, which is something that reporters have told, often told us, which is covering tr real crime is actually really difficult because you have some of the most difficult interviews, most, most heart-wrenching conversations, and it's really hard to walk up to someone's door and say, I'm sorry you just lost your spouse. Tell us how you feel. I mean, there's just no, there's no good way to do it because everyone feels awful in the moment, and victims of crimes vacillate between whether they want to share that information and talk about their loved ones or feel like they might be hard done by. And I know in my own work, most of which on a nonfiction plane concentrates on mid-20th century crimes, So, but even then I still have to talk to victims of crimes and family members and be very deliberate and careful in terms of how I approach them and how I speak with them. And I've come around to having a lot of conversations off the record first before going on the record with them. Okay. Well, how do you approach them? Well, ideally through email or social media, if I absolutely have to. Sometimes writing letters can work. and it's. But if none of those work, then I sort of cross my fingers and do the cold call, which I don't like. It makes me nervous, but I still have to do it anyway. And yet it's amazing how many people will pick up. And then if you just tell them what you're doing and why you're doing it and treat them with respect and empathy, they respond in kind. Well, to follow up on Buzz's question, and we know we're speaking with Sarah Weinman, whose new book, Evidence of Things Seen, just received a spectacular review, as I understand it, in the Washington Post. And she is the true crimes columnist, is a Let reviewer. Let me uh, rephrase that. I am actually the crime and mystery columnist. Crime, crime and mystery columnist. I'm for sorry. For the New York Times Book Review, which means I review mystery novels, which is actually my first literary love, though I was always fascinated by crime going back to when I was a child. Okay. This new book, Evidence of Things Seen, is an anthology, uh, some 14 different authors, is that yes. right? Who review various crimes, Yes. So some of them write about contemporary crimes. There's a piece about the Atlanta spa shootings. There's another one about, quote, the golden age of white-collar crime, and another one about intimate partner violence, another one about restorative justice. There are also essays looking at how victims of crime, but also people who have written about crime, what, how to sort of interrogate their own places in the genre. So it's really just about interrogating why this genre exists, and how to do it better. 
Okay, leading to this obvious question, I want to know why the genre exists, and I really want to know what got you into it. <laughs> I mean, true crime. Has yeah, this is we're back yeah. to the true confessions part of, of this course, show. Of course, of course. Okay, but uh, true crime has been in an ongoing moment going back to centuries. You could date it to the Bible with Cain and Abel. You could date it to the Salem witch trials. But certainly, whenever there are new technological changes in the culture, it seems like a big crime story is there wagging its tail. And it's because we as humans are fascinated with the worst of human behavior, and we want to understand why people cross over from not committing a crime to committing one, and what circumstances might lead them there. So I think just trying to understand why people behave the way they did even if I couldn't articulate it when I was a little kid, but I was always af- I was always fascinated by crime stories. Really? Yes. Okay, back to when you were a little kid. In for a dime, <laughs> in for a dollar. When did you start reading about crime? How old were you? And then did you pursue this in school and college? Eventually. I mean, a formative story was when I was about eight years old. And at that time, I was a baseball fan, particularly of a team that doesn't exist anymore. I'm Canadian, so yay, Montreal Expos. Um, (laughs) And it was the mid-'80s, and we had the baseball encyclopedia in our house. And I just got a notion of I wanted to look up all the ways in which ballplayers died and find out the most ridiculous and uh, just look up the most extreme ones. And then I would start regaling these stories at the dinner table, and my parents would just be like, what are you doing, Sarah? <laughs> uh, well, you g- gave your parents' eyes a lot of exercise as they rolled them. That's what we're saying. I seeing. think so. I mean, they were actually more tolerant than one could expect, considering this kind of That's uh, So you, this goes back a long way for you. And then you are yourself a very accomplished writer. Um, and did you then take up writing about crime, real crime, or f- uh, fictionalized crime? What, 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 what? I hate to use the word development, but what happened next? <laughs> well... I was always reading mystery novels in high school, but particularly in college. But I, Which was what? Um, I actually studied biology. And, and where? At McGill University at McGill. in Montreal. Okay. And I moved to New her York. Fo- her focus was on autopsies, probably. Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, because in my senior year, I found this school that, was, that did a master's degree in forensic science in New York City. And I thought, this is the confluence of everything that I have dreamed of doing So when I moved to New York in August of 2001, it was to go to graduate school to study forensic biology. And of course, I landed a month before 9-11. And I did eventually the following summer do an internship at the medical examiner's office where I was part of the- The medical examiner being the person who performs the autopsies. Correct. Okay. I can't believe we're in this rabbit hole, but here we are. Did you go to autopsies as a just just recent college graduate? Yeah. Yeah, every day. Okay, what was that like? You can get used to anything. Mm. It's pretty. I've been to one. It's fascinating. Yeah. Like the, whoever designed this thing we call the human body, it's really you know things are encapsulated in amazing. It's it's really interesting. I mean, the thing is is. Forensic pathologists tend to be among the most chill people, I think, because they're dealing with such horrors, even for natural causes, but especially when they're dealing with accidents and homicides and suicides, that they have to just sort of, you know, understand the human body and why things happen, but also why people do the things that they do. At an autopsy, the medical examiner, uh, the coroner, uh, removes 
body parts and organs and does all sorts of things that are kind of... I can't believe we're discussing this so early in the morning, (laughs) y'all. Yeah, I think a lot of people are no longer eating their eggs. That's what I think. (laughs) Perfect breakfast chat. (laughs) So tell us about how all this comes together in the new book that you've edited, Evidence of Things Seen. Uh, And tell us a bit more, if you would, please, about what will be happening. Sounds like a really interesting event at the Odyssey. Again, next Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Sarah Wanman, tell us about those two things, if you would, please. So this anthology is actually a follow-up to one I edited a few years ago called Unspeakable Acts. And that one asked the question, what does true crime look like, especially after it became such a new phenomenon around the fall of 2014 with the first season of Serial, which was probably the first podcast any any person listened to and got really captivated by it. And with this one, I wanted to ask, what does true crime look like, especially after the last few years of real social upheaval? And I, and I wanted to, instead of look for answers, to ask bigger questions. And I thought that the pieces that I collect in this anthology, along with the introduction provided by Rabia Chaudhry, who was the attorney and advocate who you first heard about in that first season of Serial, I thought that together it would make the argument that I was trying to make. But also, of course, I'm looking for quality writing and the best that this genre, which I treat as widely and expansively as possible, has to offer. And as for my event, it is indeed at Odyssey Bookshop. It's Wednesday at 7 p.m. I'll be in conversation with the New York Times bestselling author Abraham Josephine Riesman. She's the author of Ringmaster, which is an amazing biography of Vince McMahon. And I can't wait to be in conversation with her. I'm really interested in this. From time to time, bookstores and other venues uh, feature an author in conversation with another author, as opposed to just a book reading, uh, signing Q&A and the like. Although I take it books will be available and you will be there to sign them and people can come buy them and talk talk to you and ask questions and all that. But this this, uh, protocol of having a, a conversation with another author, why do it that way? What does that bring out? I like being in conversation with other writers because I like being in conversation with other people. And so just having this sense... Although, although you might change your mind after this interview. <laughs> That's what you're telling us, right? No, I'm still, it's still good. So we're all, we're all clear here. But I really, I like the in-conversation format because you just get to sit down with people you really like and whose work you really respect. And it can be a really good time, but it can also be really thoughtful. I've done so many, I've lost count on both sides where I'm the one asking questions or I'm the one fielding them. And I just feel like it's a great way to just learn a lot more about the work and about the person. So Sarah Weinman, I would like to ask you this. Uh, You have been involved obviously with crime and with crime fiction and with writing about uh, crime and with uh, doing doing your column for the New York Times Book Review for a long time. In setting out to create this book, you had an idea because you had done a previous anthology, but my guess is that nonetheless you learned things that you didn't expect, and I'd appreciate knowing if that's true, and if it is, what you learned. I mean, every piece offered a different way of learning a little bit more about the ways in which society does so many people wrong, and I think it really just affirmed the fact that finding justice in a criminal legal system is it's not a fool's errand, but it can be so difficult that I think searching for alternative ways to reckon with terrible crimes is really important, just functionally and psychologically. And did you learn something either about the authors 
or the persons accused or the victims or players in the system? I mean, you've been involved in this for a long time. Was there something new or was it old hat? I don't think it was old hat. I just <clears throat> am constantly thinking and talking about recontextualizing. So it's not necessarily that I learn new things. It's that I'm looking at things in a new way. And that's what I think what these pieces do individually and as a whole. Well, Sarah Weinman, her new book is Evidence of Things Seen. She will be at the Odyssey in conversation with Abraham Josephine Reisman next Wednesday at 7 o'clock, again at the Odyssey Bookshop in South Hadley. She is the crime fiction columnist for the New York Times, and this book is getting spectacular reviews. Please buy it at your local independent bookstore, and we'll see you at the Odyssey next Wednesday, 7 o'clock. Sarah Weinman, Weinman, thank you so very, very much for being with us. It was such a pleasure. Thank you all. Oh, come on. You can tell us the truth. (laughs) And and people people can now finish their eggs. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. You're a nonprofit doing good work in the community. You want to let people know? That's easy. Talk to Hannah. Tell her you want to have a PSA on WHMP. If you're a community nonprofit, WHMP helps you communicate. Have an event? Need donations? Volunteers? Talk to Hannah. She'll help you craft a message and we'll run it at no cost. Hi, it's Hannah. Email me at hward at whmp.com or call me at 586-7400. WHMP News, Information, and the Arts, and messages from community nonprofits. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, the Pioneer Valley's newspaper covering Holyoke to Deerfield and Belchertown to the Hilltowns, was awarded New England Newspaper of the Year for their local news coverage. Home delivered six days a week and online 24-7. Try their digital-only subscription options and stay connected with your community wherever you are. Pick up a copy on newsstands, subscribe, or visit gazettenet.com. The Daily Hampshire Gazette, covering the Pioneer Valley since 1786. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. This is indeed our time with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. 
really appreciate your being with us. Professor, I would love to understand more about what I've been reading this week. A lot of humming and thrumming in the universe. I want to know how to sing along. First, I'd like to know what in God's name it is that has been discovered why it matters, and a little more about what it is. You know, those of us, how to put this, for the liberal arts majors among us, what is this? Uh, Well, thank you uh, so much. And and your life has just changed, Bill. I mean, I I You mean the list of things Um, to worry about has just gotten longer. That's what you're telling (laughs) me, right? No, no, no. It's it's just, uh, okay, so the... Uh, so let me let me uh, go back and and just uh, say a little bit and that is this is about the detection of a background hum in some ways and this is in quotes of course it's radio so these are my air quotes uh, on the radio so hum of gravitational waves that has been detected and announced now what does this all mean so let me uh, talk again uh, a little bit about hundred years ago, Einstein predicted and through his general theory of relativity, that one of the things was that this whole universe has space time and that what gravity, what we call gravity is basically the bending of space time by any mass, right? The more mass you have, the more bending of space time there would be. So you can think of one of the examples people use is like you know a net or a bed sheet or whatever you want to use and you put a bowling ball on it and there is a bend in it and that is the relationship between mass and space time okay stop there for a second salman hamid if you would please because the word space time the phrase space time continuum just rolls off my tongue as if i have any idea what i'm talking about what is this space-time continuum, and why does... Oh, hold on. Uh, yeah, uh, I didn't say continuum. You see, you are going now into Marvel Universe. No, I'm, <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm just saying one way of thinking about it is that you just have, uh, when you describe the universe, you can describe it in three dimensions of space. So you can actually look at the corner of a room, X, Y, Z, three dimensions, length, breadth, height, and one of time. So that's how you define... Uh, the sort of like, you know, uh, the universe in terms of those coordinates. So that's what space time is. And an analogy would be that's where the bed sheet or a sh- or sort of like, you know, a, uh, a sheet comes in that you can think of, even though sheet is two dimensional, but you can think of it as a three dimensional sheet, but you also need time in it. So right now, let's not worry about time. Let's just think about three dimensional space in it. Now it's everywhere. Now, the key thing is that matter can actually disrupt or can bend space-time, right? So it can bend that spaceship. They said, like, no, you have a bowling ball. If you put it on a sheet, it's going to cause a bend. Every object, everything has a mass, like you and I, Bill, have a mass too. Uh, and um, the sun has a mass, Earth has a mass. We are all bending, bending the space-time. The more mass you have, the more is the bending. Okay. That's all there is to it. Okay, but stop there for a second, because this was front-page news in the last week or two that uh, there has been a discovery about space-time, and there's this humming or thrumming in the uh, uh, everywhere. Uh, I'd like to know what was discovered, how it was discovered, and that. Right. 
So one of the things that Einstein's theory predicted and Einstein predicted was that there would be, if you have two objects coming close together and moving in space time, they also radiate in some ways waves or ripples in this space time. These are called gravitational waves. And this was predicted and first discovered in 2015. We talked about it when the, gra the LIGO, the gravitational wave detector in the US actually, for the first time detected these gravitational waves. And those were from the mergers of two black holes. These are small sized relatively, I mean, like, you know, bigger than our sun. These are star sized black holes. When two black holes collided, they produce a ripple in this space time. So you can think again of that sheet, but there is these two things colliding and because of the collision, suddenly there is a ripple. There is this gravitational waves that go through and they can get potentially, they are very low frequency, but you can potentially detect it. That was very hard to detect it for the prediction a hundred years ago. And finally they were detected in 2015. However, the way they detected, they could detect these uh, gravitational waves through the mergers of star-sized black holes. So all well and good. That was the only way by this time that humans had detected gravitational waves. But as I said, any object that is moving, there are other objects that are colliding as well. We all produce a little bit of gravitational waves. What this discovery has been last week has been the detection of this background hum. Basically, you can think of, uh, and again, people who discovered it, they've been using this uh, way of talking about it, that you can think of it as a choir, as a chorus, that you have all of these objects producing a little bit of gravitational waves, and we have detected this hum, this chorus. And occasionally, say for example, when star-sized black holes collide, there's a chirp. And so that is above the background, which LIGO detected. But we have been, so this time, last week's news was the detection of background hum of these gravitational waves. Saman Hamid, I, I, you're such an incredible educator. I, even I can follow you, but I do have a question because you lost me on the theory of relativity. I, I was paying attention way back when in college when I was forced to read about it. I never actually read it. But here's my memory. There is the speed of light in space is constant. That's number one thing that's postulated by Einstein's theory of relativity. And number two, whoever is observing it has to be moving at the same rate in order to be able to observe it. What does that have to do with the hum? Nothing. <laughs> 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 Am I wrong? You are right, except that you are talking about special theory of relativity that came out 10 years before general theory. So there were two theories of relativity by Einstein. One is special theory of relativity that describes what you are uh, talking about. And uh, that actually is a lot about sort of like, you know, the speed of light and uh, sort of like, you know, uh, and other things. But General theory of relativity describes the overall structure of the universe. That's what describes uh, gravity in some sense, a, a way of thinking about it, a different way of thinking about gravity. So those are two different things. General theory of relativity is the one which we are talking about now. 
And in some ways, so, so let me use an example. Why do we know that objects release these uh, energy in gravitational waves? That has to do with, actually, a discovery made by two physicists uh, and astronomers at UMass, UMass Amherst. Right. They, in fact, got a Nobel Prize in 1993. Uh, 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 those were uh, Joseph Taylor, and who was a professor and his research uh, uh, student, Russell Hulse. They actually, for the first time, found two really dead stars. These are called neutron stars. And when they are rotating and we can detect them, those are called pulsars. What they found was that, yeah, they are in tight orbit around each other. These are the dead stars, remnants of sort of like big stars. When they die, you are left with this New York sized sort of like, you know, very dense star. What they found was that they are rotating around each other. They have high gravity, but their orbits were decaying, meaning to say they were slowly getting close together. So according to Newton, you would expect them to orbit forever because they are in stable orbit not according to general theory of relativity, Einstein. What it says is that as they are moving, they're moving in space, time, like, you know, so they, as they are moving, they are losing some energy. Now, where does that energy go? As they lose energy, they, their orbits get closer. This was what was discovered by, um, uh, by uh, Taylor and Hulse. They got a Nobel Prize for that in 93. By that time, by the way, they were at Princeton. So it always says like, you know, they were at Princeton, but actually they did their work at UMass. So UMass. Uh, but, <laughs> well, okay. Well, so so Salman, are you going to finish this on the other side of the break? Do we, or should we, sure. We want to do this in a few seconds here. Let me just two seconds. And so what they discovered was that because their orbit was decaying, that decay was producing this energy that was released. And that was the energy of gravitational waves. They indirectly saw this gravitational waves, which were directly detected later on in 2015. And now we have a hum. So let's talk about the hum next time. No. Well, we, yes. Right after the break, we're going to hear about the hum because I want to know how gravitational waves hum. Hmm. We'll be right back. Bill, it's all relative. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMD News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle is vetoing a pregnancy center ordinance passed by City Council Wednesday night. The ordinance aims to protect the privacy of individuals seeking or accessing reproductive and gender-affirming care from city employees attempting to report such activities to states that may impose civil or criminal penalties for partaking in the services. The Gazette reports the mayor sent a memo to city council saying the ordinance would not strengthen individual rights beyond what already exists in state law and could lead to costly repercussions for the city due to potential legal challenges. The council can override the mayor's vote by a vote of two-thirds of the full council or six yes votes. The vote must be taken no sooner than 10 days after receiving the veto letter and no later than 30 days. Congressman Jim McGovern is speaking out about the dysfunction amongst Republicans in Congress and the upcoming primary election in 2024. They have brought this on themselves. They have turned the Republican Party into a joke. This is not a functioning political party anymore. It is a party about conspiracy theories. It is a party dedicated to vengeance and just the most extreme policies you can imagine. McGovern says at the end of the day, he has confidence in the voters. Drivers should expect delays on Interstate 91 later tonight due to road construction. Mass DOT crews will be doing construction work from 7 p.m. until 5.30 a.m. 
to create a new traffic pattern change southbound at exit 23. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm and humid, a high of 88 to 92. Watch out for some widely scattered showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. Variable clouds tonight, chance for a sprinkle, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance for an afternoon shower, a high of 86 to 90. Mostly cloudy showers and 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. This news update in Spanish is brought to you by our friends at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. La representante estadounidense Marjorie Taylor Greene, una fiel aliada del expresidente Donald Trump, fue expulsada del grupo House Freedom Caucus de línea dura después de enfrentarse con una colega legisladora, dijo un miembro del caucus. La decisión de expulsar a la incendiaria Greene del grupo de línea dura de aproximadamente tres docenas de personas se produjo semanas después de que ella participara en un acalorado enfrentamiento en el piso de la Cámara de Representantes con la representante Lauren Boebert sobre el plan de esta última para tratar de forzar una votación para destituir al presidente demócrata Joe Biden. En otras informaciones, las autoridades estadounidenses otorgaron el jueves la aprobación total a un fármaco para el Alzheimer que se sigue de cerca, allanando el camino para que Medicare y otros planes de seguros comiencen a cubrir el tratamiento de las personas con la enfermedad que les roba el cerebro. La Administración de Alimentos y Medicamentos aprobó el fármaco intravenoso Lekembi para pacientes con demencia leve y otros síntomas causados por la enfermedad de Alzheimer temprana. Es el primer medicamento que se ha demostrado de manera convincente que ralentiza modestamente el deterioro cognitivo causado por el Alzheimer. El proceso de conversión de un medicamento a la aprobación completa de la FDA generalmente atrae poca atención, pero los pacientes y defensores de la enfermedad de Alzheimer han estado presionando al gobierno federal durante meses después de que los funcionarios de Medicare anunciaran el año pasado que no pagarían el uso rutinario de medicamentos como Lekembi hasta que recibieran la aprobación total de la FDA. La gran mayoría de los estadounidenses con Alzheimer obtienen su cobertura de salud a través de Medicare y las aseguradoras privadas han seguido su ejemplo al retener la cobertura de Lekembi hasta que reciban el respaldo completo de la FDA. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This news update in Spanish has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Hampshire College professor and astronomer Salman Hamid. We are talking about the recent, very, very recent discovery about background noise in the universe, something that I didn't know I had to be concerned about, but apparently now I do, gravitational waves that I didn't know existed, and something called thrumming, a word I had to look up in order to know what had been discovered. So what was exactly discovered, and what were the, sci- what were the astronomers, the scientists, looking for? Is this, what, is this what they were looking for? Or, I guess, uh, yeah. sa- sounding for? What's the right word? Well, I, I don't know if you can use the word thrumming on the radio, but we'll use it. <laughs> but, I mean, okay, so what we uh, have here, so, again, uh, let's go back to a previous conversation that astronomers and physicists predicted that there would be sort of disturbance in the space-time which could be observed as gravitational waves and those are very low frequency like you know so it's not that 
you and I are like, hey, wait a minute, this, uh, what I'm hearing in my ear is like, you know, that, that turns out to be gravitational wave. This is very, very low frequency. And for the first time, they were detected in 2015 because of uh, the two black holes, small, like star-sized black holes when they merge, they produce a chirp, they measured those. That disturbance, so when they merge, when two objects like black holes merge, they it, release these groups. Yeah, go ahead. There's a disturbance yeah. in the universe. There's a disturbance in the force when the two well, black holes yeah. meet. And they, <laughs> and they produce something uh, called gravitational waves, which... Uh, are, are these detected? Are these radio waves? Oh my goodness, that's a bad term. But are they? No, these are no, these are gravitational waves. And what they do? So what they try to do? And again, so just one second of how they did that in 2015, and then we'll compare that to what they just announced last week. These are very tiny variations in literally in your space time. It just varies just a tiny bit. So they have kilometer sized laser arrays this was the light board detector laser interferometer uh, gravitational wave observatory uh, which detected a tiny 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 variation in those lasers that are, are pointing kilometer across the very tiny so this was very hard to detect and what they discovered was that it's a slight movement and that movement is because basically a wave that went through that disturbed or that went through the space time. So there's a, just a little jiggling, if you will. Okay, it's very hard measurements. Now, this type of chirping, that's what they called it, sort of like when two black holes merge, there is a little chirp, chirp and that is a Wait very, a second, two massive black frequency. holes, two massive black holes merge and there's a little chirp, that's what happens? In gravitational waves, and of course we don't see that, right? Okay, but here is the thing. There are this background, as I mentioned, there are all kinds of things happening in the universe, including supermassive black holes that reside at the centers of galaxies that are orbiting each other. Sometimes they merge as well. And there are all of this, all of these objects are creating these ripples in space-time. And again, one, one way to think about it, as one of the uh, researchers uh, described, it's like jello. If you shake a little jello, they move a little. That's what is going on. And we are seeing this background hum of sort of like, you know, this jello movement. Question is, that is even lower frequency than the ones we observed in 2015. Meaning to say that in order to detect that, you need a detector, almost, that, that can go up to thousands of light years across. And this is where this thing is amazing. What astronomers used were these dead stars called pulsars, and they are particular ones called millisecond pulsars. They rotate so fast, a few hundred, a hundred times a second. So here is a New York-sized dead star, very high gravity, a lot of magnetic field, rotating about a hundred times per second. And we know there are about a hundred of those, but astronomers use 68 of these millisecond pulsars. They are so accurate that we can actually natural uh, astronomers, I mean, scientists actually use them for time measurements as well because they are rotating so fast and they're very accurate. Now, they are spread over the galaxy in the Milky Way, 68 of those. But any variation in their timing 
with respect to each other, can tell us a little bit about a change in space time. And now you have a detector that is about a thousand light years across. This has been described as, and you've described it as a background hum. Is it really audiological or is it visual because there's this different kind of a, of a wave? Is it something actually that can be heard or is it something that's seen on a screen? Could you help me with that? I, I know well, I, I know I'm way in the back of, I'm way in the back of the class on this, but um, we have about a minute. No, I, I'd appreciate. All of those, no, those are actually no, those are great questions. Except that all of those questions are related to what you can hear. We don't have the capability to hear it with our ears. We cannot see it with our eyes. I mean, these are also waves, but they are about a billion times less than one hertz. I mean, it's like way, way, way low, and you cannot even detect it with the gravitational wave detector we have here on Earth. So the way that's so the way to detect it was these slight variation in these dead star timings, and sixty-eight of those. So the way, if you want to summarize it, just think about this: two things. One, we came up with this amazing way of using this pulsing from dead stars to detect this tiny variation in gravitational waves, and what we detected was this is the second thing that the entire universe has this really low frequency hum coming from supermassive black holes and galaxies merging or moving around and everything else that is moving and that is creating slight ripples in space time. We cannot detect it, but it's there. Thank you, Salman. You really blew my space-time continuum this morning, and I want to thank you so much for doing it. Listen, it's always fabulous talking to you. Thank you so very much. This indeed has been Salman Hamid's universe. Thank you so much, Salman. I'm going to be thrumming all day. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. What's new at the Waitley Inn? Everything. The Waitley Inn has undergone a stunning transformation with a fresh new look inside and a beautiful wraparound porch with great views and expanded parking area. The only thing that hasn't changed is the menu, offering classic New England fare the Waitley Inn has become famous for. The Waitley Inn is open Wednesday through Saturday starting at 4 p.m. and Sunday from 1 to 7. Pickup is also available with easy online ordering. Visit WaitleyInn.com. Eat greatly at the Waitley. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. What do you take to the beach? A book. Go to Broadside, get a beach read. 
like Happy Place by Emily Henry, Romantic Comedy by Curtis Sittenfeld. Have you read Lessons in Chemistry? Read it by the water. Broadside Bookshop Summer Reads for the beach or a lazy afternoon in an Adirondack. Stacey Abrams' new thriller is Rogue Justice, and you won't be able to put it down, except maybe for a quick dip to cool off. Broadside, Northampton's community bookstore. Order any book on the Broadside website. Have it delivered to your door or pick up at the store. A little bit of hammering and a little bit of humoring. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Home improvement ideas and advice. Today's Homeowner with Danny Lipford. Sundays at noon, 101.5-1400 WHMP. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. And this indeed is Artbeat, Artbeat with Donna Bell Cassis, who has with her and us today a very special guest because there's a show we want you to know about. Donna Bell. Good morning. Thank you, Bell. You know, most people know about the musical performances at Bombix Center for Arts and Equity in Florence, but did you also know that they have an art gallery space called the Peacock Room? Well, opening this Saturday, July 8th from 5 to 7 p.m. is a beautiful show by local artist Prochetta Mukherjee Olson, and she is our special guest today. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Now, Prochetta, I the title of your show is called Scope Creep. What does that even mean? <laughs> so Scope Creep, um, it, it's a term from project, like from the world of project management. And in scope, uh, in that world, it's basically a term for the undefined and uncontrolled um, nature of a client's requirements and how that that is always shifting. So um, I borrowed that term because my show is about parenting and kind of drawing a parallel between um, the demands of parenting. Well, that's interesting because we also had a guest last week who had another perspective about parenting. And I love that there are so many very different ways of approaching the subject, but you kind of address it as, um, you know, these, these narrative paintings about the absurdities and sort of the, the joy, the wonder and the love that happens during this process, but you, 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 portray them in a very different way. Now, you blend personal iconography with conventional systems. And I know that you were born in Calcutta, India. How has that part of your life influenced your work and your painting aesthetic? So I, one of the, I think one of the most obvious ways is um, I, for the last almost 10 years, I've been working in the miniature format and my graduate thesis was all um, was closer to the Persian miniature format or the Indian Mughal miniature. Whereas right now, I I think that I'm playing a little bit, I'm being a little bit more loose with um, the rigid spatial structures of miniature painting. And I, however, it's there and how I play with scale um, is definitely not western linear perspective it's more the eastern bird's eye view perspective and so how i deal with space and scale is probably the most obvious way and of course um 
there are like formal elements like geometry, color, how that comes in is definitely um, a way that that part of my life comes in. So can you tell us, for those who, who don't know what uh, miniature painting is, could you just describe it briefly for us? Um, because they, I, when I first see your works, um, those come to mind, but then I see how you take on your own perspective, no pun, um, <laughs> um, on these works. Yeah, um, so Persian and Mughal miniature paintings, or um, even even any any Eastern uh, manuscript painting, uh, they were do usually done on um, different types of handmade paper. Um, the Indian miniatures were done on Vasili paper, and they were basically the the perspective instead of Western perspective, which is you you see everything um, in this like linear way kind of um, meeting at a point where the parallel lines connect whereas in um, eastern miniatures the most common thing i would i guess the most defining feature would be it's like you can see beyond the walls it's as though you can see through the walls if you're looking at the wall of a fortress you can see what's happening behind that as though all the buildings are stacked up on top of each other. And then scale is often um, attributed to um, the position a person held. So a king would be humongous, take up the whole place, whereas uh, the people serving the king would take up smaller spaces. So I'll one of my paintings, like I'll you'll see the mother is like ha, ha, is having this moment ears in her ear uh, fingers in her ears and she takes up the whole page whereas the kids are much smaller and the tree size like none of the sizes are realistic um, in how they relate to each other now it, so your paintings that i've seen so far are sort of these really delicately rendered figures uh, within these sort of intimate dramas and landscapes can you talk about the idea of the landscape um, you know, are these specific landscapes? Are these imagined landscapes? And the idea of parenting within this landscape, or at least what the narratives are happening. Um, so right now, the landscapes are pretty obscure, and they're not, they're imagined. And um, I think one of the things that will stand out is that the landscapes are pretty barren. And I that has to do, I realize, with my need for some peace and quiet and calmness in what seems like a very chaotic day-to-day -day life with two very little kids. Um, whereas, but I, I'm aware that this connects to like the history of my my work in the last 10 years, because when five years ago the work I was making, the landscape was very specific. Every every room that I was painting could be connected to my childhood or a space that I actually like that actually physically exists. Whereas increasingly, and in this season of my life, um, I the landscape is more um, vague, more ambiguous is a better word, I guess, uh, but barren. <laughs> oh gosh. Okay, but hopefully, you know, uh, it's not a, necessarily a dark view um, I agree, of what's yeah. happening in life. But yes. Yeah. So, um, what are some of the works? That, what kinds of works will we be able to see at the Peacock Room at Bombex this weekend? So there are oil on. There are a couple of um, oil paintings on panel and uh, watercolor on paper. 
Um, well, the work looks amazing. And if you want to see it, please go to Bombeck Center for Arts and Equity this Saturday from 5 to 7 p.m. Um, it's at 130 Pine Street in Florence. The show is called Scope Creep and it's work by Prochetta Mukherjee Olsen. And I've seen some of the pieces that you've posted online. They're stunning, they're gorgeous, and they really sort of make you contemplate the landscape, the, the situation, and the beauty and the mystery in your work. And thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thank, thank you so much for having me. And just so I can understand, at five to seven on Saturday, is that like a gallery talk that you'll be giving? Um, no, but I will be present at the gallery. It's an opening reception. There'll be um, food and drinks, and um, everyone's welcome. And yeah, and you'll be and they're not barren in a negative way. I promise. <laughs> <laughs> it's metaphorical. It's just... Yeah, just peace and quiet. That's all. Yes. <laughs> we leave it there. This has been Artbeat with Donna Belcasis and Prochetta Mukherjee. Olson, did I pronounce your last name correctly? How bad did I mangle? Uh, I apologize. Uh, the, you messed up on the Olsen. It was so hard. <laughs> <laughs> we leave it it's there. It's a little exotic, I know. <laughs> thank you. Appreciate it, Donna Bell. Thank you so very, very much. Thank you. This has been thank Artbeat. You. The beat goes on. The beat goes on. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. If we didn't go for this project, the cost to repair the schools is estimated at 80 million, and we don't get help with that. So this vote is the absolutely the smartest financial choice, and it's getting a building that we desperately need for our educators and for our students. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 101.5 and 1400 WHMP. News, information, and the arts. Grow Food Northampton helps you make the local food system better. This is Michael Skillicorn, Director of Programs. You can join us by shopping at Northampton Tuesday Market, getting a plot at our community garden in Florence, buying a farm share at Crimson and Clover or Sawmill Herb Farm. You can volunteer with us in our giving garden or participate in our neighborhood markets that bring the local food movement to underserved communities in Northampton. Get involved and support our work at growfoodnorthampton.com. Y hablamos español. Pregunte por Michael. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Fall. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg on WHMP. And welcome to Talk the Talk. I am Buzz Eisenberg. I'm Bill Newman. And this is our monthly segment, which it's not just enjoyable because of the way that the message is delivered. It is so important. This is Community Action with Claire Higgins, who is uh, Executive Director of Pioneer Valley's Community Action. And uh, I think that Claire is joining us from the Cape. Is that right, Claire? That's right. Not a bit. Vacation, but I'm, I'm showed up for you guys. And well, uh, thank you so much for showing up for us and our listeners. And uh, if anyone deserves a vacation, um, the good work that you do, the Community Action does, uh, is so important, and uh, the word community is appropriate because what you talk about is the quality of our communities. And somehow, um, for good reason, there's constantly been recognition, in certainly in recent times, that um, it's always been there, but we are starting to understand the importance of building a community, the importance that affordable housing has, that 
And affordable to who? Affordable not just to people who live in poverty. Affordable to working class people. It's just hard to find enough affordable housing to build the kind of community, to build the kind of schools, to build the kind of wages that we want and need in all of Western Massachusetts. Claire Higgins, you are maybe, uh, you're an expert in this arena of people trying to make a go of it and making our communities as rich as we all want them to be. So talk to us about what's happening in affordable housing in this region. Well, thanks for having me on as, as on this monthly basis. It's really helpful for us to be able to talk, you know, it's community action about the things that we see that we're, still, we're struggling with. And I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I'm somebody who's cared about this issue for a long time as a, you know, as a citizen even before I was working at Community Action or was an elected official. Um, and I want to frame this first with that if you look at the uh, latest census numbers, Massachusetts is, is barely holding its own in terms of population, and Western Mass in particular is losing population. Um, and one of the reasons we're losing population is because Young families can't afford to uh, stay. They can't afford as, as you know, when you have your have small children or you're in your 20s and 30s. That's when you're at your lowest earning power. People can't rent apartments. People can't afford child care. People can't, uh, in the absence of a really good public transportation, often in a two-parent family, afford to keep two cars on the road. So they move places that they can. And in fact, the entire Northeast is losing population to other parts of the country. Politically, that worries me, but also in terms of our own health as a region and as a, as a state and locality, it's really problematic. So that's why I've been interested in this for a long time. And a report came out recently called the Out of Reach Report, talks about um, affordability of housing for people living, earning minimum wage or, or, uh, or in Massachusetts is $16 an hour and what can they afford? And people earning a minimum wage can't afford a, uh, an apartment by themselves in any part of the country. Uh, there's no place in the country where a minimum wage worker can do that. In Massachusetts, if you're a $15 an hour worker, you'd have to work 91 hours to afford a one bedroom apartment. It's really it, those minimum wage workers and the people who now are slightly above minimum wage are the people who are working working in uh, you know nursing homes and working in grocery stores and all the other places that meet our vital needs. I don't know what we do as you know what we would do without them, and they can't afford it. They can't afford to do that. I just wanted, for listeners, so, I wanted to just go back. If they want to uh, look at Out of Reach, which is really an eye-opener. I, it's an incredible... And the site, you go to National Low Income Housing Coalition, and Out of Reach is about the high cost of housing. My eyes were just opened. Um, there it is, stark reality, actually, with the data that you need to really just, instead of just bemoaning the state of housing and affordability of housing it really lays it out for you it's it's uh i just wanted to ask you before we go on claire higgins how did you find this site this report? i've known about this for years i've been following their reports every year 
um, we use it as an agency to sort of understand what's going on in our communities. I'll tell you that we have a phone line people call in for to get help. And many, many, many of those calls are about people struggling with housing. Um, we're not funded to help people with housing search. And one of the challenges of doing housing search is that there's not a lot of housing to find that people can actually afford. But I've known in for a long time. It's the National Low Income Housing Coalition, NLIHC.org. Um, and they, they do great research and advocacy in terms of affordable housing. And, in the country, and you know, it's we're third. We 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 have the third most unaffordable market behind only California and Hawaii. Um, so, not a great place to be. Yeah, I, I'm I'm looking at out of reach, um, and I I see that it says that we are third. Uh, it, it says you need forty one dollars and sixty four cents an hour in wages in order to afford a two-bedroom rental home, and very few people, relatively speaking, have that. Dan? Yeah. Yes. Um, my question to you is, you know, how much of a role should the state government be involved in this? How much of the private sector? Because we get a lot of people on this show talking about affordable housing, and, and I'm wanting to know from you, you know, should the state be doing more? How does it do it? Does it just, you know spend more money, make more tax cuts to the private companies to create these affordable housing units? I'm just curious to know what you think about that. That's a good question. And I think it's a two-part question or a three-part question. There's three levels of engagement, really, at the local, state, and federal government about the effects on housing, right? So the United States chose a house, has a housing policy where um, the federal government in, engagement in Home ownership is really around the low income, is around the um, tax exemption for property taxes, right? So that benefits homeowners. Renters don't get any preferential treatment in the in the tax code. That's one place the federal government could look at that. If, if we think housing people is a benefit, then maybe we should look at that piece on the federal level. The federal level basically got out of the business of, of directly subsidizing. Um, bricks and mortar housing many, many years ago and moved to a, a process of tax credits for investors. And that, that those tax credit investments are used to, to um, support the building of housing and run through state government. Massachusetts has a, a good track record of trying to build affordable housing and incentivize affordable housing. Um, a lot of the housing that you see in our region and Northampton and other parts of our region um, has been done with um, housing, low-income housing tax credits where some percentage of the housing is, um, has to be available to people at various um, percentages of the um, median income. A lot of the housing that, you know, 155 uh, Pleasant Street or the Lumberyard building in Northampton, um, the new projects that are going online in the schools in East Hampton will probably have tax credits in them. The reuse of the nursing home on... Bridge Street in Northampton will have, you know, is in line to get tax credits. Those projects take a long time to put together because the financing is very complicated. But that's been the single biggest way the federal government through the state has gotten money into low-income housing, and it's not enough. Of course, there is the Section 8 program at the federal level, which um, 
you know, is an important part of this whole puzzle. But and if if, if we had enough vouchers, boy, we could solve the problem. But the wait, waiting list for a, a voucher is very very long. And number one and number two, um, vouchers don't pay the actual rent necessarily. So in the upper valley, um, we've lost a lot of those vouchers to other parts of this um, region. So, so just one moving south. One quick follow up. Rent. Yeah. Sorry. The city of Northampton, is there anything it could do today, tomorrow, that could stimulate the development of housing um, at a local level uh, that wouldn't, let's say, what was that? You're leading me to the next thing. Oh, sorry. Because the the biggest thing, no, you don't have to apologize. You're right on. The the biggest thing that can happen to uh, increase the stock of affordable housing or housing in general is for cities and towns to allow more housing to be built. And in many communities, that's not happening. People see housing come in and they think, oh, my taxes are going to go up because of the kids in the houses and that's going to, you know, have to pay for more for schools or people don't, you know, people love the house that they bought. They don't want any neighbors living next door after they buy it. Is it zoning right there is what you're talking about? It's zoning. Okay. That's what I'm talking about. We are talking with Claire Higgins, the executive director of Community Action and the former mayor of Northampton. The uh, headline in the recorder on Wednesday uh, had to do with the Mass Housing's Neighborhood Stabilization Program. Apropos to Dan's question, there were actual grants, $8.1 million in grants for Greenfield and Turner's Falls. And... um, Rural Development, Inc., RDI, is called of Montague, together with the uh, Florence-based Pioneer Valley Habitat for Humanity. They, too, are looking to get um, grants. So could you tell us about those initiatives? Yeah, those are two great initiatives. That first one is to, is a um, the RDI project, which, in full disclosure, I'm a member of the board of that organization, They'll buy and renovate a housing, and the house was empty. This is a, um, a, a, an attempt, a, a grant attempt through a grant program with the attorney general's office and others to um, rehab uh, vacant or abandoned pro- projects, uh, pro- housing that's been in receivership. So, you know, this one was the house that they're doing had been vacant for a decade after being condemned, and they're going to buy it, and then um, the court will have to bless that, and then they'll rehab it. And Turner's, um, this is a uh, Turner's uh, has done some really interesting housing work through RDI and others, and in this particular project, um, Habitat for Humanity has been a really important partner in all this. Is going to um, build. Uh, two-story, three-bedroom houses um, and one, one accessible house. And that'll be great in Turner's. For fa- that's family housing. It's an ownership model, so the people who, who are, work with Habitat help build the houses, and then they own the houses, which is a great, great thing for those families, that ownership model. And we have that. You'll see it around. I mean, there's houses across Northampton that are Habitat houses. There's Habitat houses in Amherst. They've been a really important part of build, putting up units, but every unit takes a long time. Uh, Claire Higgins, I'd be interested in your perspective on the way in which housing, new housing, does and affordable housing does or does not 
uh, impact people living on the street. Does new housing get people off the streets? It, does that correlation, which seems perhaps that's really, Yeah, that's a good question. I think a new housing benefits everybody, in particular people who are living on the street need a different um, model of housing. Some people call it supportive housing or um, housing with services, right? So um, they don't have to be um, so a single enhanced single room occupancy, where the you know where, where it used to call a studio apartment is often a good model or one bedroom, but with services in the building to help people um, when they need it. And we have some of that, you know, enhanced uh, supportive housing in the region. I'm not going to necessarily identify where it is because people deserve their privacy in terms of that. But it's a really important part of that model, Mm. of that approach, right, of building more housing. Families need family housing. Individuals need um, affordable um, one or two bedroom if you want a roommate and, and people who have mental health challenges or who are struggling to stay sober need housing that's going to support them in those endeavors. Yeah, well, I think new housing, affordable housing, accessible housing lifts every boat in the harbor. I know that um, the, the, what we were talking about, the mass housing neighborhood stabilization program, according to that uh, Julian uh, Mendoza article in the Greenfield Recorder, it's going to redevelop or rehabilitate 56 affordable homes, including 24 that are going to be designated specifically for first-time home buyers. It's a great thing. We're going to be back and continue yeah. our conversation right. with Claire Higgins right after this. More Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg coming up right here on WHMP. Hi, Tom Hartman here. Be sure to join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. Occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week for We the People. On 101.5, 1400, and 1240. Join me noon to 3 Eastern Time, Monday through Friday, right here on the Tom Hartman Program. WHMP. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, Circus Smirkus is coming to town. Circus Smirkus, the traveling youth circus. Jugglers, aerialists, acrobats, and wire walkers. Laughs, thrills, and nonstop fun. Four shows at the three county fairgrounds in Northampton this weekend. Saturday, 1 and 6, Sunday, 11 and 4. Get tickets now at circussmirkus.org or at the gate. Circus Smirkus, the traveling youth circus, is coming to town. Are you tired of feeling like a watchless hero in a world full of timekeeping villains? Fear not. Hero Watch Repair is here to save the day. With over 20 years of experience and a heroic five-star customer rating, Hero Watch is the ultimate superhero of watch repair and customization in the valley. These heroes possess the power to buy, fix, sell, and customize watches like no other. They'll swoop in, rescue your timepiece, and restore it to its former glory. Call Avery at Hero Watch Repair, East Hampton. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. Say Something is the Domestic and Sexual Violence Prevention Program at Safe Passage. 
Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We always gain such insights about the communities in which we live when we talk to Executive Director of uh, Community Action of Pioneer Valley, uh, Claire Higgins, former mayor of Northampton and an activist uh, for people, um, working class people and people living in poverty for so many decades. Bill, you had a question for Claire. Yeah, Claire H- Higgins, I'd appreciate knowing whether or not people who are unhoused, people who are living often on the streets, um, whether those are primarily people whose life experiences uh, are such that, well, you could say that this is not an unexpected uh, situation for them, or whether you see more people who have fallen into poverty and have lost housing who traditionally really have lived uh, middle-class lives or something close to it. Yeah, I'm a little um, leery about the term middle-class because I'm not even sure what that means. I'm not quite sure. To, I, I, yeah, and I, 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 I grant, <laughs> grant you're not that descriptive, but I, I'm trying to get to people but, who have no, fallen I, I into poverty. Like, well, I, we had a person working for us who was a working person, worked every day, every, you know, showed up every day and was too ashamed to tell us until after working for us for six months that she was living in the shelter. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she had lost her housing because you know, she couldn't make enough money. And we, you know, we supported her to the best extent we could. We actually were lobbying for raises for that particular job that she did and were able to get them. She still struggled getting housing. And, and they're in every shelter there are people who are working, in every single one. Um, but the reality is that with the wages that they're making, they can't, they can't find housing. But, you know, I can tell you that, and people are moved by the story, but people should also be moved by their own self-interest. Um, if I'm getting old, man. I'm going to be in the nursing home. Who's going to be there with me? Who's going to take care of me? I'll visit. I'll visit. <laughs> I promise. I'll be in the next bed. <laughs> and, and so let's just think about the age spectrum that we have. We're losing the younger population. We're, the graying of um, rural parts of America and is is a real thing that's happening in Western Massachusetts. Could you stay with that, Claire, for a minute, please? I'd be interested sure. to know. Are we talking about uh, more uh, persons becoming impoverished uh, on account of age? Because we often think of, well, you know, people have Medicare, people have Medicaid, uh, there are supports for the elderly. Are you saying that you're expecting, anticipating uh, perhaps dreading the idea of an influx of uh, more no. unhoused elderly people, or no? No, I think I think what what I think I don't know exactly what is going to happen with the graying of Western Massachusetts in terms of housing. A lot of people who are homeowners in their later years often have paid their mortgage off. But we're we run a program where we're in fix, helping people fix their houses with through a grant program because they can't afford to do the needed repairs so that they can stay there. Um, Massachusetts is one of the top states for using um, oil for heat. So we see seniors who are struggling to keep their 
houses warm because oil is is so expensive, right? And is not regulated. If you're in gas or electric, your power can't get shut off in the winter, as we've talked about before. But if if you don't have the money to pay the oil delivery truck or the propane truck, you don't keep your house warm. So seniors who were working, um, people may be working in minimum wage or higher than minimum wage jobs, but maybe because of family circumstances, whatever happened to own their own home, it becomes an increasing struggle as they get older in this in this changing world. Well, that makes, sense? That makes perfect sense. And, uh, you know, the descriptions that you're giving us, they're very sobering. But in order to make sure that we just don't uh, walk depressed for the rest of the day, including those of us that are on the Cape uh, trying to have a good time and escape the reality of our work, how about if we talk about something positive? <laughs> something positive is happening in Greenfield with the uh, with the uh, repurposing of the former Wilson's oh, department yeah. store. Can we talk about that? A little bit of good news. Yeah, so the, the old Wilson's department store where I... I love going shopping there, but it's gone. Um, it's going to be converted into a mix of commercial and residential uses. And on uh, commercial use would be the Franklin County Community Co-op, which is such a great place. Um, they're going to have take over the first floor there and have um, a community meeting space as well as the grocery. And then upstairs is 65 units of both um, um, income-adjusted or subsidized housing, and what they call um, workforce housing, available people at, at a, built at a, at a price point that people who are working people above the minimum wage can afford. So pretty exciting. It's and very exciting. Units. It's a lot of units, and good for Greenfield for welcoming that many units into town. Indeed. And it's the other thing I want to point out, while transportation is a problem in rural areas like ours, um, especially for people who just don't have enough money to own a car. Um, it's really great that those 65 units, good for Greenfield, it's going to be right downtown. People will be in walking right distance of everything they knew. And um, the train and the bus, the buses that um, FRTA, which doesn't run as ubiquitously as PDTA, none of us run as ubiquitously as the T, but still, those, that transit will be available as well. Here's another little factor that I found. In, in the Boston metro area, the average house has, has one car or, you know, one and a half cars the way they do it. Out here in Western Mass, the, um, home ownership, the car ownership is high. It's, you know, two, two people household has two cars. And so that adds to the overall unaffordability of housing if you also have to have a car to get to work, mm-hmm. right? So that's, that's why that point that you're making around downtown housing is so important. People can get to work from downtown. And that's why it's so important that we have community action in this region. Uh, Claire Higgins, it is always, it's not just enjoyable, it's important that we continue our conversations with you um, in making our communities as whole and as holistic as we all want them to be. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. And thanks to uh, the radio station for making this forum available. And I just have to give a shout out to our legislators, all of whom are working on the issue of affordable housing at the state level, and they're doing a great job. We are so lucky that we live where we live with the the legislators that we have uh, representing us. Thank you, Claire. Talk to you next month. Thanks.
See ya. See ya. You're We're going to be right back. Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. East Hampton Mayor Nicola Chappelle is vetoing a pregnancy center ordinance passed by City Council Wednesday night. The ordinance aims to protect the privacy of individuals seeking or accessing reproductive and gender-affirming care from city employees attempting to report such activities to states that may impose civil or criminal penalties for partaking in the services. The Gazette reports the mayor sent a memo to city council saying the ordinance would not strengthen individual rights beyond what already exists in state law and could lead to costly repercussions for the city due to potential legal challenges. The council can override the mayor's vote by a vote of two-thirds of the full council or six yes votes. The vote must be taken no sooner than 10 days after receiving the veto letter and no later than 30 days. Congressman Jim McGovern is speaking out about the dysfunction amongst Republicans in Congress and the upcoming primary election in 2024. They have brought this on themselves. They have turned the Republican Party into a joke. This is not a functioning political party anymore. It is a party about conspiracy theories. It is a party dedicated to vengeance and just the most extreme policies you can imagine. McGovern says at the end of the day, he has confidence in the voters. Drivers should expect delays on Interstate 91 later tonight due to road construction. Mass DOT crews will be doing construction work from 7 p.m. until 5.30 a.m. to create a new traffic pattern change southbound at exit 23. Mixture of sun and clouds today, warm and humid, a high of 88 to 92. Watch out for some widely scattered showers and thunderstorms this afternoon. Variable clouds tonight, chance for a sprinkle, an overnight low of 66 to 72. Partly sunny tomorrow, chance for an afternoon shower, a high of 86 to 90. Mostly cloudy showers and 80s on Sunday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 1015 WHMP. The percussive dances of African-American fraternities and sororities, plus West African and South African dance with Step Africa on its way to UMass. Momix blends illusion, acrobatics, and magic in a mind-bending interpretation of Alice in Wonderland. The UMass Fine Arts Center season. Tickets are on sale now. America's premier flamenco dance company, Flamenco Vivo Carlotta Santana. UMass alum Stephen Kellogg reads from his book, Objects in the Mirror, and performs favorite songs. The UMass Fine Arts Center. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, and performances you just can't categorize. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the complete calendar. The new season is here. Get your tickets now. At the Black Sheep in Amherst, they're still baking and cooking from scratch, just like they have for almost four decades. Did you put off a party or anniversary due to COVID? Let the Black Sheep Deli help you finally celebrate this summer. You deserve it. Treat your guests to their wonderful appetizers, entrees, baked goods, and luscious desserts. No need to do all the work yourself. Let the Black Sheep Deli help you make your party a success with less stress. The Black Sheep Deli, open seven days a week and still having fun with food since 1986. This week's Shop Tuesday is Simple Gifts Farm Store. This Tuesday at 9 a.m., Simple Gifts Farm releases gift certificates for their farm store in North Amherst. Get organic produce, pasture-raised meat, free-range eggs, local dairy, and more at Simple Gifts Farm Store. And this Tuesday, you save 30%. Simple Gifts Farm Store in North Amherst. Available this Shop Tuesday at 9 a.m. on the Shop 30 store at whmp.com. 
You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. There is something very exciting going on at the Lava Center up in Greenfield. It's not just exciting, it is important. And uh, it's going to be there for a couple months. And uh, let's start. Uh, We have some guests here in the studio who are going to be able to tell us about it. But the first thing we want to talk about is the Lava Center. Because for those of you who don't know about it, it's really an extraordinary space, a community-based art space, uh, an incubator of art ideas, a black box theater. And I want to start with you, Jane Mayer, who's a co-coordinator of the Lava Center. Right. Welcome to the show, and thank you for being here. Thank you. Thank you for having us. So give us a brief uh, understanding of what the Lava Center is, what it's intended to do, who created it. Well, the Lava Center was founded uh, in uh, early 2020, um, and initially we came together to be uh, mostly arts-oriented. We have a big space. It's kind of an open, flexible space, long Walls that serve as gallery walls. It's right in the center. It's of right in the center between of the Greenfield. Pushkin Gallery yep. and between the Pushkin Gallery and the TD Bank, across from Hawks and Reed and the Common. So we're right at the cultural crossroads, as we say, of Greenfield, and um, it's operated by Local Access to Valley Arts, which is a not-for-profit whose mission is to create opportunities in and through the arts and the humanities. So we have a wide range of programming. We always have gallery shows going on. We have spoken word events. We have um, humanities projects that uh, are unfolding um, all the time. So it's just a place where there's a whole lot of stuff going on. We're going to be having a film festival later this year. We just wrapped up a a play reading festival and new plays by local playwrights. Uh, It's a place where things bubble up and happen. And Doug Selwyn, you are the president of the board of the Lava Center. Um, So tell us a little bit about what you think the Lava Center does for the community. Well, I think it offers opportunity and accessibility, and it brings the community together. I mean, one of the things about watching the plays in the last month is that each group of playwrights, each play, um, brings its own community. And, And when these communities come together, it becomes... The word we use, uh, of incubator, it's it's creating an opportunity for artists who maybe don't have a place to go, um, to come and share their work, to learn from each other, and brings artists and the public into a common space. And part of our mission is really to to create community through the arts. I said earlier that it uh, black box theater is part of the mission of mm-hmm. the Lava Center. What is black box? theater. Take it, Jan. Jan? Well, um, I think it was Peter Brook who said a long time ago, uh, give me a room um, and have somebody walk across it, and it's a theater. Basically, that I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist of it. It's very, it's a corner of the room. It's a corner of a big room that has four theater lights aimed at it. <laughs> and and um, so it creates a stage area where lots of things go on, the play readings, the open mics, the Third Third Tuesday, which is uh, Paul Richmond's uh, long-running open mic, uh, is now housed at the Lava Center, too. So that's that's what it means. I mean, traditionally, it means a, a room that the walls are all painted black, and you do small theater things in. But 
our rooms are not black, but it's still black box. It's really great, right in the center of Greenfield. And yeah. It is. It's a cultural. Uh, it, it's it's majestic that we have Hawks and Reed across the street and mm. the performing arts and uh, that go on there. And we have the Pushkin Gallery and we have the Lava Center. It's really just a wonderful thing, and plenty of parking. Meanwhile, there <laughs> is a very significant, um, I guess, exhibition is to refer to it that. Um, Carol Ailman has. She's the president of the board of the Historical Society of Greenfield, and she's been working for four years on a project which we could get a good glimpse of at the Lava Center. Uh, hello, Carol. Could you tell us a little bit about what is at the Lava Center that you're responsible for? Yes, I'd be happy to do that, Buzz. Thanks. Um, so about four years ago, I had retired from the Five College Consortium in Amherst and um, realized that there was something of interest that I really would like to pursue. Um, I had married into a black family back in the early 70s and I knew some of those folks. Um, I wanted to return to that, that topic and find out who some of these people were. I should um, just point out you are Caucasian. I am Caucasian, yes. Um, and um, so I um, started actually at the Historical Society of Greenfield to take a look at what they had. And from there, I did online work also. I have reunited with some of the families a bit. And um, my work is a combination of the items I have gleaned from the online uh, site, um, mostly the Fulton history site, newspaper articles. I've picked up a lot of photos there and uh, gotten to, to know some of these families. And I have also talked with individuals who grew up in Greenfield or their parents grew up in Greenfield. And I am trying to um, put that together in a way so that folks get a small glimpse, at least, of what Greenfield looked like. Um, it is an exhibit that's called The Black Families of Greenfield, colon, A Brief Historical Snapshot. It is opening today at the Lava Center. It's opening it from 6 to 8 tonight. What's going to happen from 6 to 8 this evening? Um, well, I hope people will arrive with a lot of enthusiasm to see the three large horizontal frames that we have prepared. Um, they feature three families, the... Peter's family, the Scotts, and the Harris family. Um, those are the families I remember most from my early days um, of being married in Greenfield. And um, I have gotten a number of photographs from family members. I've got, been getting calls. There seems to be a lot of interest. I'm very thrilled to be able to expose some of this to folks in Greenfield who really don't might not have a sense of what Greenfield's black community looked like. I would be interested to know whether this exhibit, this exhibition, um, reflects your experience as being part of a black family in a community that is overwhelmingly white. That's a very interesting question, yes. Um, it does reflect my experience. I should say that my marriage ended in divorce, but I remained um, very close to the O'Hare family in Greenfield. 
um, up until the passing, actually, of all the members. Um, so my experience then was a bit of that of an outsider. Um, I didn't know all of the families, and the more research I have done, the more I've learned that there were many more uh, people of color in Greenfield even back then than I had realized. When you, say, when you say we were an outsider, outsider uh, from the black community or outsider from the white, from the white community because you're married to a black man? Outsider to the black community. And it was in part just the O'Hare's relationship in the black community. My former husband became a state trooper and um, while we stayed in touch all those years, I, I would have to say he wasn't particularly close, close to, to, to um, other members of that community. So I wanted to ask you, Jim Mayor, as co-coordinator of the Lava Center, these um, exhibits, and this sounds like a really fascinating and important one, uh, who is it that um, decides who will be exhibiting at the Lava Center and for how long they exhibit at the Lava Center and why? Well, um, there's a little backstory to that. Uh, back during the total lockdown, the Humanities Commission made uh, a grant available for digital capacity, and the Lava Center went for that because we What were is the Humanities Division? The, the, uh, the State Commission on the Humanities, Mass Humanities. They had this small grant available, and we uh, got that grant, and we created a, a project we called Echo Greenfield with it, which is exploring and creating histories ourselves to look at what are the, all the hidden histories of our community. Um, we have a lot of history that's in plain sight. We look at a street sign, and it's called Wells Street, and there was a Wells family. You know, we look at... Um, a building and it's got a certain name to it. We know that there's a story behind that. But there's all the stories that are not publicly attested to in our landscapes. And so Echo Greenfield launched this uh, project to, to try to foster people getting engaged and doing research. Carol became one of what we call our community historians um, who are doing their own research as lay historians essentially. And we wanted to give a forum for those, uh, those folks to have their research made available. So we, had a, we created a website. And then that grew into a, a current project, which is Indivisible Greenfield, which is looking at documenting the presence of agricultural workers in our community who are generally invisible to the public, except when we drive down a road and see, see them working in fields. But we don't think about them as being um, integral to our community, and yet if they weren't there, we wouldn't have food on our table. So that's our current project. And now we're expanding into this kind of permanent, making this corner, uh, corner gallery space a permanent humanities space that will have um, a sequence of exhibits that will all last for three months. So they're more of a, a museum rather than the, the regular art gallery wall is like a month long. Uh, this will be a three-month stint so that people have plenty of time to come in and learn from the exhibits there. I remember once uh, we had a guest on the show, and she kept using the term marginalized uh, to describe people within communities who are 
marginalized. When I asked her why she uses that term, why we all use that term, she was saying because they live on the margins, we want to get them in the center where the rest of us reside. Mm -hmm. And she said the best way to do that is to make the rest of us aware of them. Mm -hmm. We're going to come back. We're going to be talking about this extraordinary uh, opportunity. It's 6 to 8 tonight, Friday, July 7th, The Black Families of Greenfield, a brief historical snapshot by Carol Aylman at the Lava Center right there on Main Street in Greenfield. We'll be right back. is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. Find local news and local talk for the Valley. Which says we need to appeal to the wealthy white people of our region because the marginalized people do not have money. Which is true, but as we know, that's what happens when you have centuries of policies that are oppressive, that are racist. Where the heart of the Pioneer Valley lives. 1015 and 1400 WHMP News, Information, and the Arts. What's cooking at River Valley Co-op? Here's avid eater, grocery shopper, and co-op member, Bill Newman. Ah, summer in New England, and the local farmers are showing up at the co-op every day with summer berries, basil, and tomatoes, an endless bounty of fresh fruits and vegetables. In the co-op meat department, local chicken from Reed Farm, house-made brats, sausage, lots of grilling ideas. And in the co-op cheese department, get fresh mozzarella for your caprese salad. River Valley Co-op, wild about local. Everyone is welcome. Who's your healthcare hero? Let the world know. Business West and the Healthcare News welcome nominations for the 7th Annual Healthcare Heroes Award. You know someone who's improving healthcare in our region? Nominate them now. On the front lines or behind the scenes, in the hospital, administrative office, lab, neighborhood clinic, or medical office, healthcare professionals are making real contributions to our quality of life. It's time to recognize their efforts. Go to businesswest.com or healthcarenews.com and nominate your healthcare hero. The deadline, July 29th. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Weinzick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Weinzick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at weinzicknursery.com. Take WHMP and news from the Pioneer Valley with you everywhere. Download the TuneIn Radio app and search for WHMP. It's free, it's easy, and it's wherever you are. WHMP on TuneIn Radio. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. WHMP. And we are continuing our conversation with Jen Mayer, who's the coordinator of the Lava Center in the center of Greenfield, with Carol Elman, the president of the board of the Historical Society of Greenfield, who's undertaken... Um, well, the exhibit that's going to be um, displayed tonight and it's opening from 6 to 8 where there's going to be refreshments and the opportunity to talk to Carol. But I think I want to continue the conversation we had just before the break by talking to um, Doug Selwyn, who is the president of the board of the Lava Center. And we were talking about marginalized communities within our community and other communities and, and why the Lava Center thinks that it's important to highlight 
things like the black families of Greenfield. Doug, what were you saying? Well, that across the country, there are some concerted efforts to um, pretend that that history hasn't happened, that, that um, the history that makes some people uncomfortable should not be brought into schools or, or to be talked about. So the, the in, intentional erasing of people's history um, leaves us less able to actually know who we are as a community to come together to, to make lives better for us. And so part of our intentional efforts at the Lava Center is to make visible who we are as a community in the, in the Connecticut River Valley, particularly Greenfield, but, but broader than that, to recognize that we are a community that is very diverse, um, not as diverse as some, but certainly more diverse than people are aware of, and that those stories and those, those activities that people engage in are part of who we are. And, and if we keep that silent um, and invisible, we never come together. So, The importance of that mission, I don't think, can be overstated, that it, as the Supreme Court is telling us uh, that we should uh, be a race-neutral society, uh, racism doesn't exist, or that we, as we're uh, telling gays and trans people that... Uh, that there's no room for them. Uh, you're saying that locally it's really more important than ever. And it has to start locally. And it has to start locally. And uh, Jen, you were talking about these story sessions. What are story sessions? Well, the, the, uh, the history, I mean, history is built on the word story, right? And um, we really learn it initially through hearing the stories in our families, but many of our contexts don't permit those kinds of stories these days. But we... We are kind of working towards setting up recurring story booths so people can come. People who hear about us and get excited by what we're doing often have their own stories to tell and would like to share them. So we are in the process of sort of training a cadre of listeners uh, and you know arranging for the equipment that people can come by and they can either speak to a person or just to a microphone and tell their story in their own terms. And what happens to that is under their control, whether they just get a copy of it or whether they make it available to us to include in some podcast or exhibit at some point. Uh, that remains in their control. And Jen, Mayor, when do these story sessions happen? How do people get connected with uh, them? The, the best way to know about them is just to keep an eye on our website, thelavacenter.org, um, and... Watch L A V A, like L molten lava. Like yes. molten lava, it stands for local access to valley arts, but it also represents the flow of creativity and ideas and community. And so, keep an eye on our website and also just on our press releases. If, if um, you know they're in the paper, we always announce these things. And as time goes on, there will be more and more of them over the course of the summer. More opportunities to come together to tell stories in story circles or in a story booth. Um, it's, so. just, it's just um, so great. We, you know, we, live so in such, we live in small communities. Mm. We know each other's faces if we don't know each other's names and we see each other at the coffee shop, but every one of us has stories. Yes. And we're so privatized that we don't live in communities like people lived in thousand years ago where they knew what everybody did all the time but it's mm -hmm. not the way that it works anymore so it's so important that we share those i wanted to ask you carol elman as president of the board of the historical society as jen was saying history is the main thing here um 
in doing the black in putting together this this exhibition of black families of Greenfield, have black families in Greenfield and as Bill said, pre- predominantly Caucasian, overwhelmingly Caucasian community, have they made contributions to Greenfield? Absolutely. Um, that that was one of my greatest concerns that um, that people didn't know about that fact. And in fact, when I began this project. I asked around, I told people what I was doing, and I kept getting the same response. There weren't a lot of black people in Greenfield, Carol. And um, that de- made me determined to actually find out if that were the case. And um, yes, they, are, they were involved, are involved in sports, in music, entertainment, um, art. It, everywhere I looked, I began to see that these were heroes. These were people who needed to be recognized and were recognized to some degree at the high school level. Um, some of the uh, greatest athletes in football, um, basketball, baseball. Baseball was slower in coming. I think they were the, the uh, group was less accepted uh, overall in baseball uh, at the outset. But um, many, many ways that we need to salute them, basically, for what they've uh, achieved. And I've talked to people who will tell me, people within the black community who will say, um, they were the ones we looked up to and we followed in trying to also aspire for this. So um, yes, the answer is a resounding yes. In a minute, can you tell us whether or not your exploration into the history of blacks in Greenfield revealed to you how racism played out in Greenfield? It's an interesting question, and I want so much to believe that racism was not so serious in Greenfield, was not so widespread. Um, I think that would be naive to believe. I have actually talked with folks who say even today they feel followed when they go into a store, um, that there's a, that element of, or that lack of trust. Um, so um, I think as we go back in time, um, that it was a welcoming place, and um, that we need, to, we need to give Greenfield credit for that, um, but until I'm, I'm really shown otherwise, I would say more on the welcoming side by what I've read and Carol seen. Carol Elman, the president of the board of the Historical Society of Greenfield and the person who's put together this exhibition, Black Families of Greenfield, a brief historical snapshot. She'll be available to talk, to answer your questions, maybe raise some more questions. It's going to be at the Lava Center tonight, Friday the 7th of July from 6 to 8. There will be refreshments the opportunity to see some really wonderful and important things. Thank you, Jan Mayer. Thank you, Doug Selwyn. Thank you, Carol Aylman, for joining us. And thank you, listeners, for joining us on Talk to Talk. Remember, we're all going to keep walking the walk. Thank you. Did you know that you can prevent domestic and sexual violence? You can say something. We all can say something. Together, we can do so much. 
Say Something is the domestic and sexual violence prevention program at Safe Passage. Join a prevention lab to build your skills and find opportunities to say something to prevent violence. Join us and help make your community safe and healthy for everyone. Get more information or sign up for a prevention lab at saysomethingnow.org. Forbes Library Outreach Delivery Service caters to residents of any age who are homebound due to short or long-term disability in Northampton, Florence, and Leeds. A volunteer will deliver your specific requests or select materials for you based on your interests. We offer books, magazines, CDs, DVDs, and puzzles. Call 413-587-1019 or sign up at ForbesLibrary.org outreach. WHMP Northampton and WRSI HD2 Turner's Falls, WHMP.com.